My name is Father Isaac Bradshaw. I'm an Anglican priest and an educator. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the weird and the anomalous. Whether it's a deep dive into number station or exploring stories from the paranormal or just ruminating on everyday things and events that don't quite add up. But I never heard how Christian theology interacts with the oddities of our universe. So I decided to do it myself. Welcome to the church at Montauk. London isn't a city. Not really. At least, not in the way we may think of Chicago or Atlanta as one great, sprawling urban center. Now, London is best understood as a kind of collective organism, like a coral reef, each constituent part having its own identity, its own soul, and living together in a vast, sprawling hive. They have their own names. There's the city itself, the one-square-mile parcel of financial services. There's the city of Westminster, the center of British government, both royal and secular. There's Pimlico, Lambeth, Brixton, Whitechapel, the Isle of Dogs. But north of the River Thames, about halfway between central London and the circular M25 motorway, in leafy bucolic Hampstead, lies the smaller village of Highgate. It makes for an unlikely setting, for an unlikely story. A story of teenage pranks, of dueling exorcists, of black and white magic, of spectral ghosts haunting a graveyard. Because this is the story of the Highgate Vampire. In the 1830s, Greater London had a problem. As the city grew and its population began absorbing more and more residents, the local parish churches were unable to provide the burial space for the deceased. The cemeteries in the consecrated churchyards were dangerously full and overcrowded. So as part of an overhaul of burial law and practices, Parliament established the magnificent seven graveyards outside of central urban London. In this group of seven was the Highgate Cemetery. Split down the middle by Swain's Lane, Highgate Cemetery rapidly became known as one of the more fashionable places to await the Day of Judgment. It has the burial places of Karl Marx, the Rossetti family, Arctic explorer Sherard Osborne, Michael Faraday, and George Eliot. It has war graves from the First and Second World War. The cemetery itself carries what we might call today a goth feel. Far from the open, treeless fields of American cemeteries and their linear, military-like headstones, Highgate Cemetery was described by Victorian scholar Richard Altick like this. 
It represents what would result if the accumulated monuments of Westminster Abbey were transferred in their full marmoreal extravagance to the Amazonian rainforest. Trees, saplings, wild shrubs, weeds, all the rank vegetation that a weeping English climate can bring forth swallow up every tombstone that does not directly sit on a path. To reach one grave requires plunging from the path through the brambles and burrs and hip-high undergrowth and tough, ground-clinging vines that constantly trip up the explorer fresh from the London pavements. The overgrowth brings an undead feel to the graveyard with the ostentatious masonry and burial vaults. The Egyptian avenue features tombs and vaults built with Egyptian architectural details. The Circle of Lebanon is an outer and inner circular row of tombs from which a central cedar of Lebanon grows. Trees and tree roots entangle themselves around memorials and statues of sleeping angels. A marble vault with the unliving resident's faithful dog memorialized in stone laying at the feet of the master's ethereal bed. This forested, unlived-in dishevelment has inspired media like the haunted graveyards of the Fable series of video games, and is the climax of the Disney theme park's haunted mansion dark rides. Given this atmosphere, it's not unsurprising that tales of unnatural and paranormal experiences feature in the local lore in Hampstead. First, there were the exploding coffins. Then, in one famous case, Elizabeth Siddall was exhumed seven years after her death. Her husband, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti of Those Rossettis, wanted to retrieve a notebook of poems he had placed inside her coffin. And when the coffin was opened in 1869, it's reported that Elizabeth's bright red hair filled the coffin and covered her intact, undecayed body. The only sign that she was dead was the worm-eaten notebook of poems. It was a sight that would haunt Gabriel for the rest of his life. One hundred years and two world wars later, Highgate Cemetery had fallen into serious disrepair. Bombs dropped from Zeppelins and Nazi bombers had broken many of the tombs, leaving coffins exposed to the elements. Skeletons laid open to the sky, occasionally covered by rotting canvas tarpaulins, but more frequently spilled out among the tombstones and vaults and into the pathways. The unlived-in look of the cemetery turned into a disorganized charnel house. By 1969, the United Kingdom was in something of a black magic frenzy. British tabloids were filled with lurid tales of graveyard desecrations, and secret occult initiations were supposed to exist by police authorities. Even Hammer Horror got in on the action. The Devil Rides Out, based on a 1934 Dennis Wheatley novel, starred Christopher Lee in a rare heroic tale as an aristocratic duke doing spiritual battle against the evil 
Alistair Crowley-esque Makata, played with devilish charm by Charles Gray of Rocky Horror Picture Show fame. It's a great movie. But the film and others like it embedded a sense of dread in the minds of the British public regarding dark, forbidden rites. In the winter of 1969, these cultural anxieties erupted and centered on the Highgate Cemetery. David Ferrant, a Wicca practitioner and leader of the British Occult Society, said that he encountered a sinister presence in the graveyard. Ferrant described seeing a spectral form seven feet tall, with eyes that were not human, but merely had a living presence. Once his eyes locked on the specter, he said he felt energy being sapped away. He broke eye contact, and the image vanished. Later in February 1970, Ferrant wrote a letter to the local newspaper describing two more occasions of seeing this apparition. Letters poured into the newspaper, with accounts of seeing similar presences in the graveyard. There was a man on a bicycle that chased down women. There was a woman in gray walking into a pond. A man in a tall hat walking across Swain's Lane that disappeared into the cemetery's walls. Church bells tolling mysteriously from a disused chapel. No two stories matched. But behind the scenes, things were not all well in the British Occult Society. A schism had formed. Sean Manchester, a member of the Society, a self-proclaimed vampire hunter and exorcist, claimed the apparition seen by David Ferrant was no mere specter, but a king vampire, brought from Wallachia long before Highgate Cemetery was even built. He claimed that a group of villainous Satanists had resurrected the vampire, and he, Sean Manchester, would find and destroy the diabolic beast. Ferrant likewise claimed that he would be the one to clear the cemetery of the vampire. Vampires, or some form of them, exist in nearly every culture. For those of us in the West, the word usually conjures up the suave aristocrat, with slicked-back hair and thick Eastern European accent. It's an unnatural force of dark sexuality. This image is informed by Todd Browning's seminal universal horror film Dracula, and by the novel of the same name by Bram Stoker. Other times, particularly before the original movie, vampires are rodent-like, mouth-formed creatures. The silent film Nosferatu frames its vampire, Count Orlok, in this manner. Long, rat-like teeth and fingers, a thin and elongated torso and hunched back communicates not sexuality, but disease. All monsters of our imaginations are expressions of an internal fear. Frankenstein's monster can represent humanity's unrestrained lust for knowledge and creative power. Godzilla captures the fear of misdirected atomic power. The xenomorph from Ridley Scott's Alien can be the misalignment of weaponry and corporate profit. When Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897, 
British media was awash with invasion literature. These were books and popular fiction that told stories of a usually German military invasion of the United Kingdom. In the midst of a naval arms race against Imperial Germany, invasion literature argued for preparation for the fateful day when the Iron Cross would appear on the horizon at Dover. In the novel, the conflict between the British vampire hunters and the Eastern foreign vampire represents a kind of invasion. Count Dracula uses subterfuge, superstition, and a dark sexuality to corrupt the pure. Dracula must bring his own coffin earth with him to desecrate the pure soil of England. Dracula threatens not only to draw the life of the English from their bodies, but take control of their bodies as well. The hunters, by contrast, rely on research, modern technology like trains and blood transfusions, and a Protestantized Catholicism to ultimately destroy Count Dracula. The hunters were constitutionalist, Dracula totalitarian. This invasion threat waned but then waxed again in the early 30s when the threat of fascist and communist totalitarianism from the East again set off another round of vampire mythmaking. This time, it was in the form of Bela Lugosi in the 1934 Dracula film. The character of Dracula would make at least five further appearances during the World War II era, with his perceived threat diminishing as the war turned against the Axis powers. Hammer Horror rebooted the character in 1958, but by then the idea of a vampire as foreign invader had diminished. The next four films take place completely inside Germany or Transylvania. A rather good place to remind viewers of the need to contain evil during the Cold War. In the United States, vampires transmogrified briefly into overtly sexual beasts, seeking to consume those they lusted after in 1979's reboot of Dracula and 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. But as the certainties of Cold War politics fell away, vampires ceased their suave and aristocratic pretensions. Director Robert Rodriguez's Vampires in 1996's From Dusk Till Dawn became the rat-like feral beast of Nosferatu. But where does the action take place? It's in a brothel in a border town near Mexico. America's new vampires weren't totalitarians from the east, but immigrants from the south. But back to Highgate. In March of 1970, Sean Manchester declared, rather loudly and on television, that he and only he had the power and knowledge to destroy this vampire. According to Manchester, Ferrant was merely a dangerous amateur and who would only get himself and others hurt. 
a declaration that would start an ongoing feud between the two would-be exorcists. Viewers of the program believed an occult exorcism of a vampire was taking place that very night at Highgate Cemetery, and hundreds of teenagers and interested parties descended on the cemetery, where they shook the gates and required the police to intervene. In August, the story took a sharp turn. A headless, charred corpse was found laying across a path in the Highgate Cemetery, outside of a broken vault. The police believed the desecration to be a part of a black magic ceremony. Manchester, for his part, ratcheted up the story. Stealing a skull, he said, was part and parcel of a Satanist coven attempting to raise the vampire king into physical form. The story had gotten a little out of control for the authorities. Patrols were stepped up to dissuade would-be vampires from disturbing the burials or damaging the century-old monuments. Two weeks after the corpse desecration, David Ferrant was arrested after dark in an adjacent churchyard. He was armed with a wooden stake, which Ferrant at first claimed was there only to witness the vampire, and if seen, to drive the stake through its heart. Later, Ferrant claimed he and other members of his faction of the British Occult Society were at the cemetery to simply conduct a seance in order to establish a psychic link with the vampire. The stake was there to mark out a circle of protection. Ferrant went on to claim that he found a body removed from its coffin inside a circle with occult symbols and burned candles. He was tried and exonerated after his lawyer pointed out that merely hunting a vampire was not illegal. Manchester continued his activities in the media's glare, but did so in a less breaking and entering kind of way, exercising the site of the corpse desecration with incense and holy water. Later, though, Sean Manchester would claim that the exorcism he performed was much more than merely burning incense and throwing water on tombs. Following a hypnotized former vampire named Lucia, Manchester claimed that he descended into the appropriate vault, discovered a coffin with no nameplate, opened the coffin and discovered a body that, quote, was neither dead or alive. He prepared to stake the undead into oblivion, but was stopped by his assistant. Instead, Manchester claimed, he simply sprinkled blessed salt, holy water, and garlic around the vampire's coffin to end the vampire's reign, which he said was signaled by loud booming noises from tombs as the sun rose. Parent, though, was not finished with the vampire. On July 24, 1971, police discovered Ferrant and his girlfriend wandering the closed cemetery in the wee hours. Ferrant claimed that his portion of the occult society had been out investigating the cemetery for evidence of the vampire and other black magic practitioners. They had, of course, found it in a mausoleum vandalized with an inverted pentagram, a bust of the deceased, and the occult symbols for Mars, Jupiter, and the moon. 
it was apparent to David and the society members that witches had been intending to summon the spirit of the dead man. To cleanse the place, Ferent entered the mausoleum, and the female members of the group removed their clothes as a sign of purity. Passages from the Bible were read, and spells from white magic grimoires were pronounced. They reported that the icy chill of the tomb was replaced with warmness, a sure sign that the evil had been cast out. Ferent and his girlfriend stopped and took pictures to support their tale, with Ferent's girlfriend still disrobed. Now, this ended the Highgate Vampire Saga in much of the public mind, but it was not the end of David Ferent and Sean Manchester. Their ongoing feud, fueled by Ferent's less cautious and less lawful approach to the sanctity of the dead, would lead to one of the more bizarre moments in British legal and occult history, and possibly unmask the real force behind the Highgate Vampire. The spirituality of the vampire legend is something to consider. The fear of the vampire, that a malevolent outside force will feast on your life, is the inversion of the Christian sacrament of Holy Communion. Instead of the object of worship giving spiritual life to the receiver through the sacrament, the vampire takes life. The vampire takes life for himself. Jesus Christ gives his life for us. The vampire promises undeath, a state of neither death nor life that is entirely dependent on depriving others. The Christian, though, is promised life through the giving of life, seen most explicitly in John chapter 6. Jesus tells the assembled crowd that just as God gave the Israelites manna to eat as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God is giving the world something even better, true bread and true blood for eternal life, an eternal life that is true life. The vampire, to put it bluntly, is a counter Christ, not even a false one, who claims to be Christ or to represent Christianity and isn't, but a monster that completely blasphemes the Christian narrative. Take, take, take. Consume, consume, consume. It would not, perhaps, be too far from the truth to regard the 21st century America as the century of the vampire. But back to Ferent and Manchester. A year or so after laying the Highgate vampire to rest, notices began appearing in tube stations across North London proclaiming a magician's duel between Ferent and Manchester. The two set a date and a place, Parliament Hill, Hampstead, on April 13, 1973. But Ferent, who balked at the advertisement as the black magician involved in blood sacrifices 
did not appear, saying that he feared that he would be lynched by Manchester's supporters. Manchester, who did show up, performed an exorcism to banish Ferent's evil workings. But the story keeps going. Later in 1973, Ferent became the focus of lurid tabloid stories involving continued witchcraft and occultism in the Hampstead area. Animal sacrifices were alleged after a ritual circle was found with a blood-stained knife and pool of blood nearby. Voodoo dolls were sent to police inspectors. After a local resident discovered a headless corpse leaned up against his car, police decided to search Ferent's house. At Ferent's place, they discovered a treasure trove of pictures featuring Ferent and damaged vaults, necromantic symbols, and Ferent's ex-girlfriend, without her clothes, at a broken vault. Ferent was arrested and charged with body snatching, vandalism, and attempting to threaten witnesses with voodoo dolls. The trial was a sensation. Even occult researcher and practitioner Francis X. King was called to testify for the prosecution. In the end, though, it was a split decision. Ferent was acquitted of the body snatching after the actual grave robber came forward and confessed. He and five friends had committed the crimes to, quote, play the fool, not for any satanic purposes. But Ferent was convicted of the lesser offenses of vandalism and sending the voodoo dolls to detectives, and he was sentenced to prison for four years. He served two and was released. Ferent died in April of 2019, still president of the British Psychic and Occult Society. His book on the Highgate Vampire is available in paperback on Amazon for $398.39. Sean Manchester's involvement and interest in the Highgate Cemetery saga waned. In 1991, Manchester announced that he was now the Bishop of Glastonbury in the Old Catholic Church. He writes several blogs, is increasingly litigious, and maintains it was he who finally banished the Highgate Vampire. His book is likewise available on Amazon, in hardcover, for $87.43. I tend to be very suspicious and skeptical of claims of underground Satanist and underground witchcraft governs, and certainly in this case the threats of Satanic rituals in a closed cemetery are wildly out of proportion to the very real threat adventurous teenagers and legend trippers pose to century-old tombs. But it might be that the biggest threat in Highgate Cemetery during the 1970s was David Ferrant and Sean Manchester themselves and their evolving stories about the vampire. Folklorists refer to this evolution as ostention. It's the literal acting out of the narrative of the story in a kind of recursive feedback loop. The more Ferrant and Manchester insisted there was black magic rituals desecrating corpse in Highgate Cemetery, the more likely people went to see if those rituals were occurring. The more people, 
the more likely a tomb or body would be disturbed. And a disturbed body would be evidence of more rituals. It's this feedback loop that makes me wonder if, spiritually, there was a vampire haunting the cemetery. Oh, not a literal vampire, but a spirit that arose out of the collective imagination of the people involved. One that turned against its creators and fed off the ill will between Manchester and Ferent, and eventually drove Ferent into wilder and wilder courses of action to prove the existence of a malevolent spirit in the cemetery. A spirit that eventually consumed Ferent's liberty. Vampires are, of course, not real. But the spirit of vampires is real. A spirit that looks to consume others for benefit. And we create this spirit whenever we choose a path that denies the power of Jesus Christ to give us true life. And we swap it for the consumption of a false life. Whether that be through consumerism of buying, 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 or through a sexuality that seeks to consume others for pleasure, or an economic system that devours the poor for the benefit of the rich, or through amassing a spirited following of paranormal enthusiasts in a London cemetery. When we swap the life-giving Savior for anything else, we create a counter-Christ that cannot and will not deliver on any promises except one that that spirit will devour you into undeath. That's the warning from the Highgate Vampire. Choose the life that says, I'm willing to give, so others might live. And what if Highgate Cemetery itself? Did any good come out of this story? Well, maybe. The case brought attention to the dilapidated condition of the cemetery. And in 1975, the Friends of Highgate Cemetery was formed. And over the course of about 15 years, funds were raised. The British jungle cut back and tombs were restored. The gates were reopened. And the cemetery is still an active burial ground. You can visit it today for a small fee for upkeep and a tour. But be on the lookout for shadows lurking behind the tombstones. I'm Father Isaac. That's it for this week. If you like this story, consider making a donation to the Friends of Highgate Cemetery at www.highgatecemetery.org forward slash help. And hit us up on Twitter at Montauk Church or email us at thechurchatmontauk at gmail.com. And stay tuned for more adventures with the Church at Montauk. <laughs>